Greetings. My name is Blake Schmida, alongside Nicolette Rojo, and welcome to the American Valor Podcast. On the American Valor Podcast, supported by the Bob Feller Act of Valor Award Foundation, our goal is to educate and inspire with acts of valor that embody the traits which National Baseball Hall of Famer and United States Chief Petty Officer Bob Feller lived by. Citizenship, service above self, and commitment to country in a time of great national need. Welcome back to the American Valor Podcast, folks. I am your host, Blake Schmida, and I am joined yet again by a host or by a guest today. Second time on the pod- podcast here. Welcome to the show, Jim Leak. Jim, thank you very much for joining us once again. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. And Jim, since we have last had you on, um, I know you've had a pretty monumental moment in, in your career. For those who don't know, Jim is actually a published author. And Jim, I just want to jump right in here. Um, I know we have talked about some of your recent works um, on the last podcast we had you on here. But since then, I know you have released The Turtle and the Dreamboat. I was hoping, you know, maybe you could give us a brief synopsis of your newest book and um, you know, maybe your thoughts on on what brought you to the conclusion that this is a piece you wanted to write. Sure. Well, um, The Turtle and the Dreamboat, it's from uh, Potomac Books. It's uh, nonfiction. It's about uh, two U.S. military long-distance nonstop flights in 1946, just after World War II. Uh, one plane was Navy, one plane was Army, there was sort of an inter-service uh, rivalry going on. They were both trying to position themselves in the new nuclear age, the atomic age, uh, showing new capabilities and uh, the ability to uh, deliver atomic weapons, actually. Uh, but what interested me was uh, these nonstop flights uh, they would, they, as I said, they wanted to show that they could uh, go long distances to complete a mission. So they were both independently uh, and simultaneously uh, planning these uh, extremely long distance flights, unheard of for 1946. Uh, the, the Navy plane was a P2V Neptune, which was a new plane, a patrol bomber, and the Army plane was a B-29 bomber. Uh, this particular bomber had, in fact, uh, flown bombing raids against Japan during the war. Uh, the, the Navy wanted to go an extreme long distance. So uh, as it ended up, uh, they planned to fly from Perth, Western Australia, to Washington, D.C., and beyond, if they could, nonstop which was just crazy far for the time. Uh, the Army plane, they wanted to fly from Honolulu over the Arctic to Cairo, Egypt. Again, a crazy distance. And flying over the Arctic, which really hadn't been done much at that time. Uh, it became a, a rivalry, though it hadn't been planned that way. They both flew the first... Uh, the, flew together the, the, the same week. And um, the, the Navy plane left uh, September 30th, 1946, 
The Army plane left a few days later, uh, the first week of October. The Army had the advantage for a long time, and everyone thought the Army plane would go first and get all the headlines, but they had a series of mechanical problems. Uh, so the Navy got away first, and they didn't quite make it to Washington, D.C., but they made it to Columbus, Ohio, which is my hometown, uh, a distance of 11,300 miles, you know, a crazy distance, a crazy distance even today. The Army plane got away a few days later, flew over the Arctic to Cairo, a distance of 9,500 miles, not as far as the Navy, but in, in some ways uh, more important to commercial aviation today. Uh, the reason I got interested in it was my hometown, the the, the Navy plane called the Truculent Turtle landed at what was at the time called Port Columbus Airport. And as I was growing up uh, periodically on the anniversary of the flight, the local newspapers would carry the story. So I sort of grew up knowing that story and that's what I planned to write about. But when I dug into it, I discovered the the Army plane, which was called the, the Dreamboat, the Pacuzan Dreamboat. And it became a, a dual story. And the two stories were just completely intertwined, the, the entire uh, history of, of the flight and the, and the rivalry. And I have to say, I, I really enjoyed uh, researching bo both planes. Uh, the two crews uh, were all World War II veterans. They were amazingly good crews. Uh, if you comb the Army and the Navy for the best crews for those two flights, you couldn't have done better. Uh, the Navy plane had uh, four crew. They were all pilots. They were all officers. The uh, Army plane had a crew of 10, and they also had a, a civilian from Boeing along. And again, they they were tremendous people. They were tremendous pilots and air crew. And uh, it was just uh, so much fun to, to learn about them. I, I probably enjoyed uh, researching that project as much or more than than my other books. Yeah, and, and there's a you know something to be said for that connection between Columbus and and the inspiration to write. Um, you know, your most recent book, but I'm just curious, you know, on a more general level, including some of your other works, like from the dugouts to the trenches, I know you have done quite a bit of work, both in writing um, and outside of, of your career as an author, um, both between, you know, military history and baseball history. So I'm, I'm just curious, you know, what, uh, who are some of the authors or, you know, baseball personnel, military personnel, that have inspired you most to, to write some historical works like you have, um, you know, this nonfiction uh, tie between baseball and military. Um, where where did that kind of come from for you? Well, the, the tie between baseball and, and military uh, was a complete accident, really, to tell you the truth. Uh, at the time, I was living in uh, Morgantown, West Virginia. And one day I happened to stop into an antique shop near Morgantown that I, I went to all the time. This was, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago, maybe. And they happened to have a, a rather beat up copy of the compiled editions of the Stars and Stripes, the great army newspaper. 
from Paris in World War I. And this copy was all beat up and falling apart. But my wife got me a good solid copy for Christmas that year. And it was, I was just curious. Uh, so I, I started leafing through it. And uh, I realized it had a, a, a really great sports section in it. Or at least it did for a while. <laughs> That's another story. But so uh, initially I started um, uh, picking out some of the, the stories, the, some of the articles from that sports page and running it on the anniversary, the same day that it had appeared in, in 1918. And, and that was really fun. And um, that led to a, a book, uh, compiled uh, articles from the Stars and Stripes and civilian papers, which uh, eventually led to other uh, baseball slash military books. I mean, it became sort of a, sort of my area. Nobody else was really writing about baseball during World War One, And I thought somebody should have, I thought it was a gap in the literature. So I, I began to work in that area. And in recent years, I've sort of gone back and forth between baseball and um, aviation and science. Um, when I was in the in the Navy, I, I worked with the Airedales, the, the, you know, the air wing. And I also, for a while, a brief while, I was a, uh, a baseball beat writer when I was back in the, my newspaper days. So in, in the past uh, 10, 12 years or so, I've, I've sort of switched back and forth between the two, and, and I've had a good time doing it. Absolutely. And very clearly, we can appreciate your works here at the Bob Feller Active Valor Foundation. Um, you know, I guess my question for somebody who has been passionate enough to, you know, explore that gap in the literature and write your own works to kind of highlight some of, you know, this great, rich history between baseball, aviation, uh, you know, our nation's military, you know, whether whether they're pursuing a similar work of nonfiction or any kind of writing, you know, what are some things you have learned throughout your career, um, your writing and publishing, um, you know, career? And what advice would you give to somebody who's aspiring to become a published author, much like yourself? Well, you know, my advice always initially is don't. <laughs> uh, that that sounds odd, I know. But I tell aspiring uh, writers, don't. And then if they do anyway, then they're writers. They don't understand that. <laughs> but it, it's easier all around if you're just sort of dabbling, not even to get started. Uh, but if you're compelled, if you're obsessive, if you're driven to write, then you should. You absolutely should. And then I encourage that completely, wholeheartedly. Uh, the hard thing to learn about writing is uh, how difficult it is. <laughs> it really is hard. Uh, it, it takes a long time to get good at it. And one thing you should know is that you're probably going to end up with manuscripts that never see the light of day. Uh, that's just that's just the learning curve. I mean, there are some geniuses out there who can turn out a, a masterpiece the first time out, but that's not likely, not likely at all. Uh, so be prepared to pay your dues 
put some projects away and move on and learn how to be a professional. And that takes time. Absolutely. Usually it takes time. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I know. I can only imagine, um, you know, how mentally tasking something like that can be for sure. Uh, I, I have a lot of respect for what you and others do because, you know, I, I couldn't even begin to think about writing over hundred hundreds of pages. So, um, you know, just out of curiosity, I don't know if there's anything you're plotting on next. If you, if you have anything in mind that you'd like to explore, um, in your, you know, next writing endeavors, is, is there anything you have in mind that you're wanting to research or write about next maybe? Oh, I always have, you know, two or three balls in the air <laughs> right now. Um, uh... I have a book in production, uh, again, with Potomac Books. Uh, it's about to start copy editing, I think. Uh, it's probably my last World War I baseball book. Uh, it likely will be on the fall winter list this year. And that's already written. So as I say, it's just the copy editing now, which is no small process. Uh, in the meanwhile, I recently signed a contract to write a uh, baseball biography uh, about uh, the umpire broadcaster uh, author, Ron Luciano, who was a major league uh, umpire in the 1970s, and who I happened to meet an interview back in my newspaper days. And uh, I wrote a short profile of him last year and decided to expand that. And I was pleasantly surprised by the uh, the interest uh, that, I, that I had from publishers. So that's what I'm uh, researching now. I've written a little, not much, but the, the research, at least the uh, newspaper part of it is almost complete now. And then beyond that, I always have, you know, one or two other things that I, I have in the in the back of my mind, uh, you know, it's that old that old line. Uh, so many books, so little time. It's the it's true for writers as well as readers. Yeah, with it being so time consuming, I'm sure it's there's a lot of ideas flying out there. Especially as as you get into something, you think, well, maybe that that could be a good idea to expand more upon. So uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear we have more coming from you. Um, more well, I'll run out of lifespan before I run out of ideas. <laughs> yeah, well, ideally, that's how, you know, that's how it should be, you know. Absolutely. I mean, you hate to take anything to your grave with you, but, um, you know, I, I'm glad to hear that you're still inspired to to keep going and, and sharing more stories. So, um, you know, one one thing that I have recently learned that I'm not sure we ever touched on um, in our first meeting over this podcast here, uh, you know, I, I have to ask what, what was your experience? Are you still currently working with Sabre at the moment? Uh, occasionally. Yes, I do. Uh, I write uh, for the bio project, which are, you know, short bios of, of ball players, uh, MLB executives, umpires, uh, owners, that type of thing. I say short, they, they run three, 4,000 words, uh, usually. I think of that as short. Some people think that's amazingly long <laughs> and long-winded. Yeah, I mean, that would add up. Um, you know, is, is there any, you know, 
personality that you can think of that, um, you know, really sticks out as one of your favorite to, to write about, um, or, you know, what kind of work and research, uh, does that entail being, being with Sabre? I, I've done about uh, a dozen of them now, and you have to be a, a Sabre member to, to write them, but they're, you know, they're, they'll welcome you with open arms if you want to do one of these things. Uh, I did, oh, maybe eight World War I era ballplayers, which I really enjoyed. Uh, I did Ron Luciano uh, last year. Uh, I've done some people who are fairly famous and some people you never heard of. Uh, I also did my old boss, uh, the editor when I worked in Palo Alto, who sent me to cover the Oakland A's in the early 1980s. And his name was Leonard Coppett. And he had been a uh, New York Times baseball writer for years in, in the great uh, Yankee days. And then he was my editor uh, in, in Palo Alto for the old uh, now departed Peninsula Times Tribune. So I wrote uh, Leonard's uh, biography as well. I, I sort of felt I, I owed it to him. And uh, <laughs> I also did uh, the... Oakland A's manager I covered for Leonard, uh, Steve Boros. And then I did uh, Ron Luciano because, as I said, I interviewed him when his first book came out, when he was on his first book tour. And he's a very interesting character. He was this sort of larger-than-life ex-football player, former All-American who became uh, an umpire because uh, – he was hurt and his NFL career never took off. And then after he was an umpire, he was a color man for NBC. And then he was this author of these really riotous, humorous books. So he was this, this personality that everybody thought of as bigger than life and, and happy and go lucky. And uh, in the end, he took his own life, and and I wondered why that was, and that's one of the things I'll be exploring in this, in this new book. That's that's amazing. You know, I'd really be curious to learn more, and um, I'm I'm somebody who doesn't read a whole lot, but I'm I'm inspired by the works that you've done, and I would certainly encourage anybody who is you know interested in our podcast and what we do at the foundation to look into Jim's pieces. He, um, his work very obviously aligns a lot with what we do here at the foundation. And, um, Jim, I know we've, we've been with the foundation pretty similar, um, you know, time wise. And I am just curious. I know we had the pleasure of, of meeting in DC. I'll, I'll be a brief, but, um, I was wondering if you could share with us one of your favorite memories, so far with the Bob Feller Act Valor Foundation. I know a lot of what we do here is a lot like this, you know, over Zoom and, and you know, not quite as, as personal or physical, but, uh, you know, what is one of your favorite things been about, you know, becoming an advisor with the foundation? Well, you know, really one of the, my favorite things was that, that meeting in, in Washington last November, that the annual, uh, award ceremony and it hadn't been held for a while because of COVID and I was really glad to go over I was glad I did I was glad to, to meet people and uh, 
to, to see the awards. And as it happened, I was sitting right behind the Naval Academy baseball team. So, <laughs> so, so that was that was fun too. And uh, aside from that, um, the main thing I've done with the foundation in the past year and a half or so was uh, I worked on the Grantland Rice Rule War One Poetry Project, which I really enjoyed, and I, I really thank the the foundation for making a reality. Uh, nobody thinks of sports writer Grantland Rice as a poet, or at least not a serious poet. He, he had sort of doggerel and, and little bits of uh, sports poetry in many of his columns, but he wrote very movingly and seriously about his World War One service, and I was very glad to see those poems get uh, a wider readership, thanks to the foundation. Absolutely. Those, you know, I, I recall, you know, helping to decide which of those poems, you know, fit um, the foundation and, and what we wanted to share over that, you know, year span with those poems. And I would also encourage you if, if you haven't had a chance to, you know, read those poems, um, those are still available on the website. And um, yeah, Jim, you did great work helping to, um, put those pieces together and, and share some of Grantland Rice's great work. But um, Jim, I, I greatly appreciate you joining us yet again on the American Valor podcast, um, you know, with more works in the future. Uh, people do not be surprised if we have Jim on again, a uh, great <laughs> friend of the foundation. And I know uh, we're looking forward to, to everything he has left in the tank here um, as a writer and, uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining us again. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me back. All right. We will catch you next month on the American Valor Podcast. Thank you. Good night. To our listeners, this concludes this episode of the American Valor Podcast. This conversation is brought to you by the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, the Department of the Navy, Major League Baseball, USAA, BWXT, Huntington Ingalls, and the Cleveland Guardians. Please feel free to leave your comments in the comments section below and connect with the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Active Valor Award. You can engage with the foundation at activevalorward.org. There, you can learn more about Bob Feller, Jerry Coleman, recent nominees of the awards, view pictures, and sign up for updates, including the American Valor podcast and more. For Blake Schmida, Liam Manchetti, and everyone at the American Valor Podcast, thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time. Music.